Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. This is the first in a series of four interviews with changemakers from Sharon Salzberg's new book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World, which offers a new perspective on how activism and meditation practice can uplift each other. These four individuals are making change on the ground and in real people's lives through activism, outreach, art, and policy. Our first guest is Shelley Tagelski, a mindfulness teacher, writer, and community organizer. This year, Shelley founded a mutual aid fund called Pandemic of Love. It's for people experiencing financial insecurity during the pandemic. Shelley is a mindfulness advocate, and with Sharon, she has led retreats for people who have experienced severe trauma, including communities affected by gun violence and mass shootings. I spoke to Shelley and Sharon about their work and how they combine meditation and activism. Shelley Tagelski, thank you for joining us on Tricycle Talks. I'm here with Sharon Salzberg, who discusses your work in her most recent book, Real Change. So why don't you first tell us about Pandemic of Love? I've seen it everywhere in the media, and I'm wondering if you could tell us how that started and what it is. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. It's really an honor to be with my teacher, my mentor, my friend, Sharon. Pandemic of Love is a mutual aid organization that, no pun intended, went viral during the pandemic. And the concept of mutual aid is not something that I invented. It's something that has existed for a very long time, something that when your grandparents, my grandparents, definitely somebody in our life at some point used to say to us, back in the day when we were kids, or when we were growing up, you knew your neighbors, your neighbors took care of each other. There was really a sense of community and of communities of care that existed just naturally, not in a formal sense. And what has happened since the definitely industrial revolution, but certainly since the technological revolution is that we have really seen us disbanding these communities of care. We do not really know our neighbors. And there isn't any formal structure that exists that can make sure that it's easier for people to ask for help, which is one of the hardest things to do. And it's easy for people who have any type of privilege, whether it's time or money or you know, space, to be able to offer that help. And so what a mutual aid community does, and certainly what Pandemic of Love does, is it creates this formalized structure of a community of care in the form of mutual aid. And it's very simple, which is why I think it caught on so quickly, because it essentially just pairs up a person in need with a patron or a donor that can fulfill that need. And the construct, the formalization of it was just two really simple forms on Google Forms, a give help form and a get help form. Once somebody fills out a form, they just simply get matched directly with a person who is able to fulfill their need. And the most beautiful thing about it, besides the fact that they get their need met, is that there's a human connection that forms and people are able to feel seen and heard on both sides of the equation, actually. And that's really, I think, one of the most beautiful byproducts is this connection, this empathy, this compassion that is able to be fostered in a time, I think, of disconnection, both physical and otherwise. So this began when the pandemic began or shortly after it began. 
What sort of requests for help did people have? You know, they really evolved. They ran the gamut. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was requests for things like groceries, money for supplies, people who had no means to be able to shelter in home and stock up, which is what we were being told to do. And so as the weeks passed and people were not earning income and there still wasn't any assistance from the federal government, which many people still haven't gotten, we started to see requests for larger items like rent, car payments, COBRA payments, because a lot of people lost their job, yet they still had chronic illness that they had to deal with. And so they were looking for assistance to make sure that they still, in this time, of course, would have health insurance. And now what we're seeing as we are starting to open up People are, even though they're going back to work, is that now all of the landlords and the mortgage companies and all of the utility companies, phone companies who were kind enough to defer payments are coming back to the individuals whose payments were deferred and saying, all right, we're back in business. You know, you owe us three months of this phone bill or three months of this utility bill pay up. And people obviously don't have the means to do that either. And one of the things that we also started seeing was a request to help pay for funerals and cremations and to assist individuals in this country whose families don't qualify for one reason or another. And one of the biggest reasons that we saw was that they were undocumented workers for any state or federal subsidies were unable to claim the bodies of their loved ones if they could not afford to do so because they Mm -hmm. just couldn't get help. So we were able to help pay for a lot of funerals and uh, cremations and just to allow these families to have some dignity and honor. That's really amazing. I'm wondering, you mentioned Sharon is your teacher, and of course you appear in Sharon's book. I'm wondering how the two of you met, and could you guys talk a little bit about how meditation supports the work you do? Because it's pretty overwhelming work. I mean, I understand that tens of millions of dollars have exchanged hands so far through your efforts. So how is this supported by your practice? You know, I can't remember how we met exactly. I remember I was going down to Miami. I was doing a benefit for the mindfulness program at the University of Miami. And Shelley asked me if I would do an extra night speaking to social activists. And I said, great. And then, you know, I went and did it. And, and subsequent to that, Shelley, I knew, was very involved in the community of people who survived gun violence, particularly at that time in Parkland, the school. And um, she invited me in to come back and teach a half day for that community. And it forged a very significant relationship for me with Shelley and with the community, and and that's been ongoing. You mean the community in Parkland? Yeah, well, it began in Parkland. Shelley is a mindfulness teacher, and so her service to that community was really through that vehicle. And, and so it was kind of amazing for me to see that. I, I forget, Shelley, how many people came to the first program that I did? Oh, God, I mean... I think over 300 at least. And then subsequent to that, we actually had a retreat. And that retreat for me was the beginning of that work going well beyond Parkland. And and there were people who came to the retreat, which was in Barry, down at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies from everywhere. I mean, tragically enough, there were people who could come. They qualified to come from everywhere. So Sharon, you were introduced to the Parkland work through 
Shelly, so Shelly, how did how did you get involved in that? Uh, well, um, I was I guess I guess you could say I was at the wrong place at the wrong time. I actually I met Sharon years ago as a graduate student. She was really just my teacher. It was like a one-way conversation. <laughs> and so this was well, well over 20 years ago when I was a grad student in New York City. And her voice, her teachings, her guided meditation stayed with me long after I left New York. I was reintroduced to Sharon actually through Dr. Amishi Jaff from University of Miami, actually at a Wisdom 2.0 conference. Can you say briefly who Amishi Jha is? Sure. Amishi Jha is a brain scientist, a researcher, uh, and she leads the Jha Lab and You Mindfulness at the University of Miami. Her research is really well known on attention-based training in her work with the army, military at large, globally. She's a world-renowned teacher. One of the things that's really interesting right now uh, in terms of her work with the military, it's just really about work with very high stress populations is, uh, you know, kind of seeing the extrapolation of that to first responders and ambulance drivers and, you know, frontline workers in in these amazingly um, tense and demanding situations. You know, you talk about stress, and I imagine the Parkland retreats and the the victims of gun violence who show up. I imagine that's very stressful for the two of you. It can't be easy holding that space. So how do you support each other in that? Sharon, I know how you support all of us with your teachings. Shelley, I know you teach as well. I'm just curious if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about the overwhelming grief that you're holding space for and how you sustain your own practice and teaching. Well, I would say that, you know, one of the most significant words of that entire retreat was tools, you know, and I would never assume that I could heal someone's suffering. And actually, we just did an online retreat and one of the um, speakers, one of the prominent people offering was a dad from the Parkland community who had lost a son in the shooting and his other son had been injured. And he's become very involved in mindfulness, both as a personal practice and and someday I I think really as a teacher. And uh, he's an incredible voice from within the community. And so he began by saying something like, I don't imagine I'll ever get over the pain, but I'm learning how to navigate it. And as soon as he said the word navigate, I thought of how I navigate things, which is by having a North Star. And that's basically what I feel like I have to offer is is my own experience and expression of that. And like I said, I think the most significant word was tools. That's what they were looking for, you know, was was something that they could take with them that they could experiment with. It's really up to them, you know, to see if something's useful or not. And I think if one goes beyond that, I mean... Everyone I've worked with, you know, international humanitarian aid workers, frontline domestic violence shelter workers, medics, you know, everybody faces that same issue, you know, how to be present and open and caring in in the face of tremendous suffering and realizing I can't fix this. This is not exactly in my control. So Shelley, the work that you're doing with Pandemic of Love, that came after the work you did with the Parkland families. Is that correct? Pandemic of Love just started 
on March 14th of 2020. So it's fairly recent. It's actually only about three months old. Uh, The work I've been doing with communities affected by gun violence has been ongoing since 2018. And prior to that, just as a community activist or community organizer and activist and um, a, a teacher with a community here in South Florida, I was really deeply embedded in working with social justice organizations on helping them with resilience building and really being able to continue the work that they're doing without burning out and specifically just looking at the the issue of activist burnout and fatigue. I also say one of the really remarkable things about Shelley is that I mean, for any of us, if we're feeling anguish over what we're witnessing or you know, if we feel devastated, we feel grief, we feel anger, whatever it is, it's like Shelley actually translates that into action. Right. It's like something comes of it, you know, which is really genius. What I was wondering is like, Sharon, I think of in the, the early days when you and Joseph and Jack founded the Insight Meditation Center, you never knew how big it was going to get. It just be, it swept the whole culture after a certain point. And Shelley, likewise, did you have any idea how big Pandemic of Love was going to get? Was it overwhelming? Was it a new source of stress? And, and where is it going to go next? Well, no, I had no idea. I honestly just thought it was going to serve our community, which is sizable in and of itself. But really, that was the idea It has been a new source of stress. It has been very overwhelming, but it's also been incredibly joyful and hopeful. It's provided me with a lot of fuel as well and a lot of reassurance about the direction that we're heading into, humanity is heading into, uh, and what we're, I hope, are going to emerge into uh, this new order of the way the world is going to be, right? This, This great awakening, as some people are calling this time period, Where is Pandemic of Love going to go next? Well, mutual aid wasn't invented by me, and certainly it's not going to go away after the pandemic is long over. The idea is that, um, I guess my big, hairy, audacious goal, if you will, is that I would love to, to see a formalized institutionalization of this concept of mutual aid. So just like every municipality has a city hall, I would love to see a mutual aid community in every single city across the country, across the world, where it just becomes this like construct, this way of being where people could, regardless of, again, their socioeconomic status, because it's not just about uh, being able to fill financial needs, but people could just start living in this construct of, I have something to offer that somebody needs. And I need something that somebody can offer me. And we can get together and create this equity that we talk about often that I think we are hopefully going to realize one day soon. Well, that is a pretty big goal. But given the success you've had initially, I think it's one that's reasonable to expect. It's a possibility. Or maybe it's unreasonable, but unreasonable things happen to Well, I'm a very unreasonable person, so (laughs) which is why I think I always just start these things because I don't really think them through sometimes. I just say, this is how I want to see the world. And so I'm just going to start working towards that and chip away at it. And uh, maybe it's not my work to finish, you know, but it certainly is my work to start and not give up on. 
Yeah, that's sort of the spirit in which Tricycle was founded. We had no idea that 30 years later, here we'd be, and Sharon has been there for all of them. So who do you call when you're stressed out, Shelley? Oh, God. Well, definitely Sharon. Um, I'm stressed out. I have to say, I'm stressed out <laughs> by <laughs> pandemic of love. I feel like I'm her Jewish mother, even though she has a Jewish mother. I'm her Jewish <laughs> Buddhist mother. And I was sort of like, but what if you run out of donors? You know, the need is so poignant or heartbreaking even. And so I personally am stressed out by her work. (laughs) Well, you guys then can be stressed out together, right? Right. That's right. Sharon has a very calming effect on me. That's why I asked. (laughs) I've called her plenty of times. That's funny. (laughs) Yeah, no, we've had these like weekly calls uh, since the pandemic has started. We've kind of created this space for ourselves. Those have been really helpful because we we just yenta it up. We like talk about anything, you know, and it's it's great. And, you know, it's like business and then spiritual, and then we talk about what's stressing us out. And I think that helps as well. Community. It's always about community. One last question. Sharon describes your first exposure to activism, and I was wondering if you could just say something about that when you were quite young. Yeah. So um, when I was uh, in middle school, uh, my best friend, uh, Jennifer Hyde, really bright red hair, like you couldn't miss her. I sat behind her in English class and was just fascinated by the color of her hair. And her personality was as fiery as that color of her hair. I did not grow up in a house of um, activists. It grew up in a house where where there was a lot of involvement in community, you know, this concept, the Jewish concept of tikkun olam, repairing the world and helping your community and helping your, your neighbor. But I didn't really, I think, realize that one person could actually make such huge impact until I met Jennifer, who was vegetarian, was really involved in Greenpeace was very involved in PETA, the People for Ethical Treatment of Animals. And she came over for Shabbat dinner at my house. I grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. My mother offered her probably meatloaf or brisket or something like that. And uh, she looked at my mother squarely in the eyes and said, nope, I don't eat animals. I'm a vegetarian. And I was like, what? What is that? Like, there's an option? You could be a vegetarian? That was like mind-blowing to me. With that, I just became completely fascinated by her choices and the reasoning behind them. And I started to join her as she was going door to door, raising money for Greenpeace to save the whales and boycotting all these different companies. We started this like petition at school and middle school. We started a recycling program that wound up being at the school long after. And this was like in the late 80s, early 90s when like recycling was not a big thing. You know, it was maybe it was in like certain places, but definitely where we grew up, it was not a big thing. So I realized, wow, you know, like I could actually organize people and then boss them around and tell them what to do. And as the youngest who grew up in the household with two older brothers, it was actually probably that was equally as alluring to me to be able to actually, you know, for once not be the one told what to do, but know that I could actually channel people and get them to work together for the collective good of the world was really exciting to me. Well, you know what, Shelley, I've seen you on TV. I've read about you in interviews. Um, I had no idea that you knew Sharon until I read Sharon's book. So I'm impressed. How about you, Sharon? I think it's wonderful Thank work. You. Congratulations. Oh, she's always impressed me. Actually, I have one more question for Shelley. Well, it's two questions, actually. <laughs> one is, it seems to me that part of the future of meditation practices 
for the people who are in the gun violence community will be the emergence of teachers from that community. And so I just wanted you to maybe talk about that for a moment. And then my other question was, when I read about some of the offerings that you're doing, the term is trauma-informed mindfulness. And I wonder if you can explain the distinction between the tools you might offer. Sure. Well, there is no normal population. I mean, that's actually a misnomer. Somebody said to me once, uh, there's always trauma in the room. You just have to assume that. Mm. And But obviously with people who have been grievously hurt themselves or witnessed really murder or have lost somebody, it's very intense. And so what's the distinction? Yeah. Well, so let me answer your first question um, with regards to building capacity within survivor communities and why I think it's important. When I started to do work with Survivors Empowered, which is an organization that our friends uh, Sandy and Lonnie Phillips formed after their daughter was murdered at the Aurora movie theater shooting, their organization, the best way I could describe it is they're like the FEMA of mass shootings. Like when a mass shooting happens in this country, they show up. Well, originally it was them. Then it became this network of other survivors that they trained and started to kind of curate, if you will, and different mental health practitioners, mindfulness practitioners, etc. And what happened was that they realized very early on that when a survivor would arrive on the scene, a survivor from a different incident or event. So for example, when the Saugus shooting happened in Santa Clarita High School just this past year, there were parents from Sandy Hook, from Parkland, from Columbine who arrived on the scene and were able to sit within the first 24 to 48 hours with the parents of individuals who were just, you know, children who, who just lost their lives and, and say to them, I know what you're going through and actually say it from a place of knowing. And be able to hold their hand and offer them this ushering, this navigation, there's that word again, right, through what they were about to embark on, all of it. And there's a lot. It's even beyond grief. There's just so much that these individuals beyond grief have to deal with in these times that we're living in, right? Like people saying that your, your kids were crisis actors. They really didn't exist. The shooting never happened. I mean, just awful, awful things that, that layer on top of everything that you're already dealing with. And what we realized really, I think in the last few years, and certainly with my friendship with Mitch, who Sharon mentioned earlier, a Parkland dad, who has been using mindfulness and is in the process of getting his mindfulness teacher certification that there's no better teacher for the survivor community than a survivor. And so if we can, as teachers and leaders in this community, help to build that capacity by creating the spaces, finding the funding, putting together the programs to certify individuals who would like to become certified, I think it's a great service to this unfortunate club that many people find themselves in that nobody wants to be a part of ever. And then to answer your second question, you know, trauma-informed mindfulness, for me, trauma-informed mindfulness is really about understanding that 
you need to be able to give people a choice. I think oftentimes as teachers, and certainly when I first started learning mindfulness curriculum well over a decade ago, it seemed a lot more binary, if that's the right word. It was just like you teach it this way. A simple example would be, for example, just telling people to close their eyes, right? That's just a very simple example. As a trauma-informed mindfulness teacher, you would never tell somebody to close their eyes. You would invite them. You would give them a choice to do that or to keep their eyes open. You would invite them to make their own choices because what we found is that with individuals that we're working with that have been in a situation where they're experiencing PTSD or trauma of any sort is that they feel like they've lost control. And so if we can, as teachers, help them feel like they are in control of the situation, then facilitating some sort of healing process or ushering them or helping them navigate, I think, is much easier. And it can also be gentler for them. Thank you. Thank you both. I mean, this is amazing work, and it's an understatement to say I'm impressed and moved by the work that both of you do. So thank you very much, Shelley. Thank you, Sharon. It was a pleasure having you here. Thank you. Really appreciate the time, and I love you, Sharon. I love you too, Shelley. <laughs> You've been listening to Shelley Tegelski, the founder of Pandemic of Love, and Sharon Salzberg, author of Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves and the World on Tricycle Talks. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org. Tricycle Talks is produced by Paul Ruest. I'm James Shaheen, editor and publisher of Tricycle the Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening. Thank you.